Okay, it's really good to be back with you. This is the third podcast for Hope Prison Ministries, and I'm just going to dive right in. Last week, we, we talked a lot about the differences between positive and normative economics, and not just positive and normative economics, but really positive uh, science in general that deals with the raw facts of science, the actual observable provable facts of science, and then normative economics or normative science where you start actually trying to get in and make interpretation and application and create policies from what you learn. So we talked about that. We talked about how important it is that you have that Christians and non-Christians will come to very different conclusions because they start from very different presuppositions. And this week, we're actually going to talk some about economic policy and what that looks like in the scripture. So thank you for joining us for the third podcast of Not a Square Inch by Hope Prison Ministries. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is Not a Square Inch, the new podcast of Hope Prison Ministries. The goal is to help you see all of life through the lens of Scripture. To learn more, please visit us at notasquareinch.org. All right, so we're back now, and we're talking about economics from a Christian perspective. And we're going to get into some of this stuff right off the bat. Super excited about this. Here is where we go. We're going to look at uh, this incredible article that was written by Tom Rose. You know, I, I thought about this, and you heard me read the table of contents from that book, Economics from a Christian Perspective, last week. And if you didn't get the chance, you can always go to the podcast at www.notasquareinch.org, and you can check out the posts related to each podcast episode, and we've got references to the books that we talk about and those things in there. And so I talked about the fact that it would be almost impossible for me to, I would just be teaching through that book for weeks or even a year. It would be easy to do, especially in 30-minute increments. So rather than do that, uh, and to keep it fresh, not just for you, but for me also, and because I'm clearly not an expert in those fields, I just wanted to introduce you to that. But there are some things that I think are really important to talk about, especially as we consider the upcoming election. And so I was reading, uh, I was I was doing my own research on Tom Rose and trying to locate him and found out, of course, he had passed away. I think it was 2014. Um, his wife had preceded him in death, so she was passed away. Now it's just his children. But I was looking online, and I did find an article he had written in 1998, which was long after this book. This book was first published. Oh, it looks like it was first published in 1996, so not much earlier than this podcast. It was first published in 1996, and uh, he wrote this article in 1998. But I would think he would agree, you know, uh, every author or certainly professors or um, Christians who write books and things, they may write many books over the course of the career, many, many articles over the course of the career, but then they write this one just epic book that might be the sum of everything they've learned uh, from their studies and from the time that they've spent looking at God's Word and how it applies to their discipline. 
And I don't know that this is the case for these two books, Economics from a Christian Perspective, uh, the Microeconomics in the Green Book and the Macroeconomics in the Red Book. But I would say that if Tom was here, I would bet you that he would answer that this was kind of the culmination of learning for him throughout the time that he'd been a professor at Grove City College and all the papers he's written and all the research he's done. And if you get the chance, I just can't encourage you enough to buy a copy of the book because it really has so much to say and so many different things to talk about that we could just never, ever do it justice. So with that in mind, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just kind of scan this article and go over some basic principles of Christian economics uh, based on the things that he had written in this introductory essay I found. Okay, so let's go over some real basic principles uh, that we have. First was the first principle when we actually drew this last week, when we talked about Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, what we called the creation mandate. It says, man is made in the very image and likeness of God. Man, therefore, is free and has a right to be free because he is God's image bearer. Also, for the same reason, man is an economic being. That is, he is able to think, to impute value, and to rank his imputed values on a comparative scale so that he can make intelligent choices. Man engages in the mental process in the very same way that God does. If man were not created in the very image and likeness of God, he would be incapable of making value imputations, and there would therefore be no such thing as the study of economics. This observation is a positive application of the Bible to the study of economics. Note, too, that God's dominion mandate to him was made in relation to man's covenantal role as the head of family. This, as well as other verses, brings us face to face with the biblical concept of sphere law, which decentralizes social power structures into the separate spheres of life, family, church, voluntary organizations, and civil government. This Genesis passage and others therefore suggest a decentralized economic system which emphasizes man's right to individual's freedom and self-responsibility before God. Then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 to 28 it says that man stands in direct covenantal relationship to God with respect to his role as vice-regent over God's creation. In order to exert dominion over God's creation man must be free to do so. Without the economic freedom to act, he can't properly be held responsible by God for his actions. So God's cultural mandate to man also calls for maximum economic freedom coupled with maximal responsibility to God. But then we learn from Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 19 that guess what? Man's sin leads to a lust for tyranny. Now we know this to be true, right? Because from the beginning, the basic sin against God was that we wanted to be God. We saw that the tree was good for knowledge, that it was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, that it was able to make one wise. Satan said, no, God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows it's going to make you like him. You're going to know good from evil. And that became our lust. We wanted to rule. We wanted to reign. We wanted to be little gods. That's the fall of man into sin from the very beginning. We don't want to be subjected to God. We don't want the freedom that we have in Christ. No, we want to make our own freedom and we want to rebel against God. So Tom Rose writes that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 19, man sinned. The natural economic scarcity, remember the Bible says that, uh, that, his, that man would have to plow the earth and that he would have to work to get things that he needed. 
Well, that natural economic scarcity, which was already there because we were finite, that existed even before the fall was exacerbated in intensity with the fall. Thus, man is condemned in this fallen world to continual economic struggle to survive. Civil rulers who attempt to build utopias here on earth through economic intervention might well take this passage to heart. You can't help but think, and this is me talking now, you can't help but think about the passage where Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. Rulers and parties who want to take wealth and redistribute it to everybody and create an economic utopia to end world hunger, to have world peace, to have all these things. The first thing that they fail to realize is not going to happen. Never going to happen. You're never going to be able to eliminate sin. You're never going to be able to eliminate men's lust for power and for greed and for self-exaltation. So the very idea that they're trying to implement policies and to bring about things that are completely foreign to the society in which we live because of the nature of this world and the fall of creation and the sinfulness of men means it's not going to happen. So why spend your time trying to bring about the things that are not going to happen this side of glory? Civil rulers who attempt to build utopias here on earth should take this passage to heart. For rulers are not only finite beings with limitations to their knowledge and ability, but they are sin burdened just as much as, if not more than, the citizens over whom they would exert their authority. Do you see that? That the leaders of the nation are as sinful and corrupt as the people who they would govern. And so for them to try to create this utopia is a denial of their own sin. And this is what has always been said about some of the differences between the parties is the whole basis of the democratic platform is that you as individual citizens do not know what is good for you. You need us, the elitist, the good people, the self-righteous to help govern you. You need us to give you social security because you won't save for yourself. You need us to give you a check each month because you won't work for yourself. You need us to do this. You need us to do that. You need us to take care of this. You need us to take care of that because you clearly won't do it for yourselves. Here's the thing. In some sense, they're right. Those things are not things that we take care of the way we should. Many times, you know, we don't take care of our health the way we should. We don't take care of our finances the way we should. Just today, I was talking to my wife and saying, we spend way too much money eating out. We know these things, and we still don't do them. But for the government to come in and try to tell me how much money I could spend eating out or how much money I can give to charity or what charities or where, where my money is going to be distributed, the problem is they have their own agendas, <laughs> I don't want somebody else telling me what to do with my money because it's not their money. It's my money. I worked for it. And it's only my money if you're a Christian. It's only your money because God has entrusted it to you and you are called to be a good steward of those resources that he has given to us. So it's not just my money, it's his money, first and foremost. And I don't want the government that's run by other wicked people with other wicked agendas telling me what to do with my money. And you shouldn't either. Because they're no better than you and they're no worse than you, regardless of what they want to fill your head with. 
if you will submit your life to Christ and seek out the wisdom of Scripture and seek out the wisdom of God, guess what? You too can have a life that is very different from the one you have now. This is the hope of the gospel, right? Jesus came that we might have life and not just life, an abundant life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to fill your head with garbage and tell you a bunch of lies that you're not good enough. You don't want to do this. You need somebody else doing it for you. You need somebody else taking care of you because you won't take care of yourself. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You were made, you were created in the image of God to be better than that. And that's what you need to be thinking about. InmateMentors.com Help us help your loved one. We write letters, send books, accept collect calls, help those incarcerated plan and prepare for release, and create parole packages. To learn more, please visit InmateMentors.com Okay, we're back. So we talked about earlier how, you know, man's sin leads to a lust for tyranny. And we looked at the fall and we see how it's really the problem with all of creation, all of man fallen into sin, is we fell into sin because we wanted to be God. We wanted to be like God. We wanted to rule our own city. We wanted to do our own thing. And the reason we don't want other people entrusted with our care to the level that some people want to be is they're just as wicked as we are. And they don't need to be telling me how to spend my money. And they don't need to be taking money from me or from Warren Buffett or from anybody. We don't need to be redistributing other people's wealth. We need to be concerned about our own affairs. But it's not civil government's place to get involved like that. That's not the role of government. We're going to talk about that. Because Why? Because they're just as wicked. How do we know that? Because in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5, 7, 9, and 10... We know that man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. The dilemma is that all men are sinful and can't be trusted. So what's the solution? The answer is to limit civil authority. And if you look in the Old Testament and you see how God structured the civil authority for the Israelites in the wilderness, you will see a biblical roadmap for civil government, limited, limited civil government. The civil government wasn't concerned over every single thing involved in the people's lives. They were limited to protecting the good and punishing those who commit evil. And in Jeremiah 17, it tells us why. Because the man's heart is sinful, were wicked, were inclined to every sort of evil. And it says, so what is the solution? It's to have a strictly, Tom Rose says, to have a strictly limited civil authority, which serves to repress the natural outworking of man's evil heart, so that voluntary exchange will be maximized and the use of coercive force minimized. The very existence of evil in the world requires some sort of institutional arrangement, which will deter the outworking of evil from man's heart and fostering, and it encourages the fostering of voluntarianism. For instance, it would be a breach of an important biblical principle for me or you or the civil authority or even the elders of a church to dictate to someone else how he should spend his income or direct his tithes to God. To do so would be pompous and a blatant act of tyranny. God reserves to himself the sole authority for searching the heart of men and reigning in the hearts of men. 
It is not the responsibility that can be legitimately or safely entrusted to other civil people, to other people. Why? Because we're all sinners. We all want the lust for power. We all want the greed. And what's the expression? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when you entrust your livelihood and your means of support and production and the economic society and production, when you entrust those things to sinful, fallen, broken men who are no different than you and me, you're really giving them authority that the scripture doesn't give them, that you shouldn't give them because they're sinners too. You don't want them meddling in your everyday affairs. A few more words, he says, should be directed at this point to man's inner sin problem and God's outward provision for man's living in a sinful world. Consider this. It is true that man's heart always turns toward evil and that he cannot, therefore, be trusted in positions of authority. You see this in verses, and this is me speaking, you see this in verse Genesis 6, 5 and 8, 21, where it talks about the fall of man in, into sin. It talks about before the fall and after the fall that man's heart is only evil continually. He can't be trusted. Why? Because he's sinful. Yet God has made a unique provision to stem the outward working of a man's evil heart. He has done so through a combination of man's very God-given nature in conjunction with the proper functioning of civil government, the only valid coercive social institution which God himself instituted. How does this God-instituted synergistic combination of sinful man and coercive civil government function? It works like this, and it depends upon a great big if. If the civil authority faithfully performs its God-given role of maintaining peace and order, look at chapter, look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 and Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7. If the civil authority performs its God-given role of maintaining order, then outward social harmony results in spite of man's inward evil heart. As long as civil rulers faithfully fulfill their God-given responsibility to punish evildoers, then no person or entity in society will be able to tyrannize anyone by wrongly imposing his will on another. The beneficial result of this proper functioning of the civil authority is that all men will then be forced to, by law to enhance their own well-being only through the peaceful process of voluntary exchange. When my wife and I first got married, I moved out to East Texas for a large consulting job, and I don't think I... I don't think he would mind me using his name, Bob Palmer of the Mount Pleasant Daily Tribune, then of the Mount Pleasant Daily Tribune, the Palmer Publishing Group. He hired me to come out there and help build a website for East Texas. And I remember when I was halfway through the project, I was I had been hired on a on a fairly generous salary with a large commission structure. And halfway through the process, my commissions had stopped because I was no longer selling. I was now focusing on helping the website get built. And I remember approaching Bob and saying, Bob, look, you hired me on this basis and I was making all this money. Well, now it's Thanksgiving and it's Christmas and my income has fallen through the floor because I'm spending time working on building the website. But I'm actually putting in more hours than I had been before. And I'm working harder and longer doing this than I was ever doing during sales, doing the sales. And Bob was a believer in free economics, and he was a believer in the free market, and he recognized that, and he immediately gave me the difference in my pay. Bob was a wonderful man to work for, and uh, I know that he's still around, and I know that we're friends on Facebook, and maybe he'll listen to this. Who knows? But 
anyway, it was great working for him and for also Jennifer Stewart and I are friends on Facebook. And it was great working with them. But Bob was a believer in free market and economics. And he was willing to, more than happy to, to give me the difference in my pay because he believed in the effort of work. Now, if Bob had not done that, I had a couple of choices. One is I could go, I could just quit, leave, go somewhere else. But I had made myself valuable enough because I'd read these books, Economics from a Christian Perspective. I knew what Tom Rose is saying here. Hey, look, my choice is not to try to force Bob through legislation or union or whatever that he has to pay me a certain wage. No, my role is to make myself so valuable to my employer that they can't imagine life without me. And so I made myself so valuable in that particular role at that particular moment, my set of skills, the things that I was doing for the company made myself valuable enough to Bob that he was willing to pay me what I felt like and what he evidently felt like I was worth. That is free market economics, and that is the value of an exchange. And it worked for both of us. I'm a sinner. Bob's a sinner. And yet we were able to come together. Why? Because we both had a self-interest in what was good for both of us. And we didn't have to use coercive practices. I didn't have to consult an attorney, get a labor union, try to do something horrible to force Bob to do what he wants. Why? Because the Bible says that what he's earned and what he's built, that tremendous company that he and his father and family had built for years, that was worth something. And they'd put a lot of time into that. And nobody from the outside has the right to come in and tell Bob to do what he wants with his money. There's a parable in the scripture about the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And there's a great biblical economic principle that you see from that, where you have a guy who pays workers the same wage at the end of the day, even though they started at different times. And somebody gets upset, but Jesus says, hey, he's the owner. It's his right to do what he wants with what is his. If he wants to be more charitable to somebody who started at the end of the day and give the same amount to the people who started at the beginning of the day, guess what? He can do that. That's okay. That's his right to do it. If you don't like it, quit. That's the problem with unions. I remember when I was living in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, there was a big bus manufacturing company. I can't think of the name of it right now, but the union ended up driving the plant and thousands of jobs out of the city because they would not accept the wage that the company was willing to pay. So in their lust for tyranny, the union had actually cost thousands of people their jobs. Now, I'm not suggesting that there has never, ever, ever been a place for unions. I'm not suggesting that there may not ever be a place for unions. There may or may not be. We could debate that on another call but or another podcast. But what I am saying is that it's the owner's right to do what they want with what is theirs. If they've worked hard for it, like Bob and his family had for centuries, hey, you know what? It's his right to do what he wants with what is his. It's his right to distribute his wealth the way he wants to. Nobody should be telling him how to distribute his wealth. And I feel that way today. I frequently pay people in our ministry more than what other people think they should be paid. Or I'll give more to people uh, and, you know, and not a lot, obviously, because we have so little, but I'm just saying, you know, $10 an hour instead of $8 an hour or something, if I happen to pay somebody something. And the reason I do that is I want to be generous to people the way God has been generous to me and generous to, to my family. And I just want to encourage each of you to think about these economic positions. You don't want people telling you how to distribute your money. 
In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, and chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, God's response to Nimrod's attempt at building history's first worldwide totalitarian state at Babel was to confuse the language, scatter the people, and divide the lands. Now, this is very significant when you start thinking about economics. Remember, uh, the Tower of Babel. They were trying to build the Tower of Babel. What did God do? He confused the languages and he scattered the people. Why? Because totalitarian governments do not work. And the only thing that happens is we see that God's plan for man in a sinful world is to move toward a decentralization of power and toward a one-to-one basis for economic exchange. This is a movement toward free market exchange rather than toward a a system of uh, centralized economic control and government. So that's very, very important. I mean, the centralization of power, Tom Rose says, leads inescapably to tyranny and to the subsequent loss of man's freedom and self-responsibility before God. Think about that. The more that we move to tyranny and the more that we move to a a centralized government, you're giving more and more wicked men control over what you do with your resources in your life. You're essentially selling your freedom. When I preach in the prisons, I would tell the guys all the time, it's not an accident that it was a Republican who freed the slaves. And it's so true. We, you know, when I say we, I'm I'm a Republican. When we we want people to uh, to achieve on their own responsibility and to achieve their own freedom and to do what they want with their money when they get there, as long as they're not doing anything to harm others. Uh, we want that. We want to encourage that. We don't want to do things that are going to hinder that or keep you cap- keep people captive to a particular social system. I tell guys with our transitional houses, one of the things that makes our transitional houses very, very different is we have an exit strategy. We are not designed. I tell guys, I didn't take you to raise. I want you to get a job. I want you to work. I want you to save up and I want you to get out. <laughs> And I mean that. I want them to get out. I want them to be successful. God created us to be, I say us, I mean all of us, to be ministers of reconciliation, to help bridge the gap, to bring people back into reconciliation with him, with their community, with each other. You can't do that if you're keeping everybody captive at one location. There's a very prominent ministry in this town that receives a tremendous amount of public support because they deal with people nobody else wants to deal with. But they keep them captive, and there's no exit strategy, and they never seem to want to let them go. And in fact, if a guy wants to leave, they make them feel like they're leaving some kind of cult. And they're like, oh my gosh, if you leave, you're going to go to hell. You're going to be back on drugs. You can't make it without us. So they become that person's savior instead of Jesus. This is what's wrong with so many ministries. They're not helping people become They're not being ministers of reconciliation, reconciling them back to the community and to God. They're seeking to keep them captive, and they they almost become their Savior. No, 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 stay here. Stay here. Here, you can go out and sell this and make money, and you can go out and do this and make money, and then bring the money back, and we'll have everything in community. But do they help them get in their own relationship? Do they help them get in their own place to live? Do they help them get in their own job and save their own money and become the men God created them to be? No. That's a horrible, horrible practice. And it grieves me that there are so many in the community that just throw thousands of dollars at these ministries and they don't have a clue what's going on behind the scenes. 
that they're really not doing what they should be doing, which is to help them become their own people. So that's why we want to guard against those things. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, man has not only the right to be free, but he has the duty to preserve his freedom. Remember, God said, let my people go. Economic freedom isn't simply for the sake of enjoying unfettered license without moral restraints. Instead, its purpose is to allow mankind maximum freedom in enlisting all of his resources, his personal gifts, his physical wealth, and financial resources in the challenging service of faithfully building the kingdom of God until Christ returns. Do you understand that? Faithfully building the kingdom of God until Christ returns. It's one of the reasons why I love Dave Ramsey, who says, live like no one else now so you can give like no one else later. Live like no one else now so you can give like no one else later. Civil government, you know, he goes on and he talks about government licensing. He says, a free market generates charity. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. God requires us to fear him, to love him, to serve him with our whole heart and soul, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So the application of economic inquiry must always be circumscribed and directed by God's law. This means that the man, that man, the economist, must continually delve into the Bible to make sure that he's always headed in the right direction, that he's making wise choices that his choices are always in harmony with biblical precepts. Precepts. The mandate to love our neighbor seems to require that the study of economics be directed toward the end of serving our fellow men rather than manipulating them to achieve our own self-centered ends. Amen? That's, a, that's awesome. Hopeafterprison.com We help locate transitional housing for those being released from prison, regardless of their crime. And when permitted, we connect those being released with one or more mentors from the local church. To learn more, please visit HopeAfterPrison.com. So we talk about the limited role of civil government. Only a return to biblically-based concept of sphere law will, re- will be able to turn this ominous tide of social revolution. Here's what we need you to do. Study God's Word to determine what the God-given role of civil government is in society. Please, people, hear this for the upcoming election. You are not voting for a person. I cannot stand Trump as an individual. I think he is one of the most arrogant, conceited, foul-mouthed men ever, but he represents a Republican platform and a political platform, and he represents certain ideology that is so much more in line with biblical economics than the Democratic Party. The idea of individual freedom and responsibility and self-governments and a limited civil government that was clearly taught through the Mosaic Law, the civil law that you see in the Old Testament. Greg Bonson wrote a book called By This Standard, and it's basically talking about you have a choice. You can either be governed by your own laws or you can be governed by God's law. That's really the only choice that comes down to. The great theologian Bob Dylan used to sing, you going to serve somebody. you going to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Do you understand? You're going to serve somebody. The question is, do you want to serve a political office and a person in a political office, or do you want to serve Jesus Christ with your own wisdom and your own intelligence and your own means of giving? 
study God's word to determine what the God-given role of civil government is in society, and then please vote accordingly. People who value freedom and who desire to remain free must rediscover the answer to this question. What is the proper sphere of operation? What are the legitimate biblical limitations to the power of civil government? Second, study the United United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights to rediscover the clear limits of power that were so carefully delegated to the federal government by America's founding fathers. Do you know if, when we talk about, you hear things like the separation of church and state and the idea that uh, somehow Christianity should have no influence on government, which is insane because it's very much Christianity that led to the government we have in the infancy. And when you hear those things and you see those things, it's very hard to understand how we can have the government we have today that's almost, well, maybe not so much under Donald Trump, but certainly under former administrations and under what is certainly to come if the other party is elected, to think about the tremendous hostility there is to a sound biblical Christian faith, uh, conservative politically, conservative economically, conservative theologically. It's, it's absolutely astounding to think that we could come this far. And you know what? I read once that one of the criticisms of the Founding Fathers is that they were just too short-sighted. They had no idea that what they had fled from is what this nation would become. And why is that? Because of the very thing we've been talking about, that the sinful nature of man makes it so easy uh, to seek out tyranny and to corrupt others and to have corrupted power and to enforce things on other people that they should have no business enforcing. So you need to study the scripture. You need to seek out and understand the role of civil government. You need to study the United States Constitution and the Bill of Rights and discover the clear limits of power that were so carefully given by the Founding Fathers. It would be good to study the Anti-Federalist Papers and to learn those things. The Bible speaks in many other ways to the study of economics and to the proper role of civil government, uh, which is a closely related subject. Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians speaks about the diversity of spiritual gifts in the church. This same principle applied to economics teaches us that diversity of gifts which God has bestowed on mankind. It's what make economics exchange between individual men as well as between countries profitable and beneficial to all. It provides us with a clear guide for economic development. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 28, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, with regard to limited civil government. It stresses the dispersal of economic and political power in contrast to a concentration of power at the national or international levels. It focuses on the inseparable concepts of individual responsibility before God, coupled with maximal personal economic freedom. It insists that because of man's innate sinful nature, mankind must rely on God's providence through free market exchange rather than trusting in the goodness of men. There's so much more that could be said about economics, but these are the main principles that I wanted to highlight is the tremendous need for a limited role of civil government when it comes to economic practices and policy. The differences between the two, you know, the different types of sciences, the positive form of science that just looks at strictly at the data, but then the normative role of science that seeks to draw principles and policy and make application of those things that they learned in the positive role of science. 
We talked about those things and we talked about how the sinful nature of man affects them all. The sinful nature of man makes it hard for people to come up with these things and to make the right decisions and the wise decisions. And that's why we so desperately need to be anchored in God's word and always paying attention to, as Tom Rose said, the immovable benchmark, Jesus Christ, and letting him govern our thoughts. And as Corinthians said, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Well, hey, I hope you've enjoyed this second episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And we may or may not continue with economics next week. We'll see. But for right now, have a great week. Be sure to visit www.notasquareinch.org. And also check out www.hopegivesback. Because Hope Gives Back is the splash landing page for Hope Prison Ministries, who sponsors this podcast. And I would love to hear feedback from you. I got a lot of feedback last week from different people, but most of them know me and just want to say things to make me feel good. So I'd love to hear feedback from some of you out there that um, maybe I don't know that you're listening to this podcast for the first or second time. Would love to hear about some of the things that you might have to say. Hey, thank you so much for listening and have a great week. God bless. Bye. Thank you for listening to Not a Square Inch, the podcast of Hope Prison Ministries. Join us next time. To learn more, please visit us at notasquareinch.org.